Hello and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I'd like to begin today's program by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. And indeed, I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands from where anybody listening to this podcast today is joining us from. Well, the concept of frank and fearless advice in the Australian public service is a guarantee from our public servants that they will deal openly, honestly and impartially with the best available evidence and provide advice that is politically neutral. But on occasion, after official policy advice to government is publicly released, governments can sometimes be accused of ignoring or indeed even rejecting the advice of their experts. So how does this happen? And is there something about the official advice that makes it easy for our political leaders and their advisers to ignore? Well, in a recently released book, How Government Experts Self-Sabotage, The Language of the Rebuffed, ANU academic Dr. Christiane Gerblinger has addressed this very dilemma. Dr. Gerblinger is a visiting fellow at the Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the Australian National University. After completing a PhD in science and regeneration in Gothic science fiction back in 2000, Christiane worked in a range of public sector roles, including as senior policy advisor and a speechwriter. And in her last stint as a speechwriter in the Treasury portfolio, she was awarded a Sir Roland Wilson scholarship to undertake a second PhD on the language of the rejected or ignored policy advice. She joins me on the line. Dr. Gerblinger, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. And listen, your book asks the question whether there is something about expert policy advice that makes it easy to overlook. What prompted you to look at this particular issue and how did you go about it? Well, I have been working, as you said in the intro, in government for quite some time uh, by that point. Um, And my last role as a speechwriter in particular um, made me sort of come even closer, you know, more face-to-face than I'd previously been to the kind of import content and advice that um, policy advisors wrote. And, I, you know, it was my job as a speechwriter to try and make that um, accessible, interesting, human, warm, you know, for, for a minister um, to say out loud to a variety of audiences. And so as I start to sort of scratch away at this content to, to find some of the, the meaning um, I found it harder and harder to actually be able to um, ascertain what this input was actually saying. Um, and so I thought, well, these are all a whole lot of smart people, you know, yet here, here they are writing in a way that, um, you know, really makes it hard to pinpoint meaning, argument, you know, opinion, uh, and so on. So I guess that was my first uh, kind of um, 
I don't know, the first thing that sort of galvanised the idea that there was more here and that I could say a lot more about it, I guess, in order to then kind of show how this happens uh, and, you know, so that something could be done about it. So once you started this exploration into this world of arcane, perhaps often inaccessible language that really wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing, what did you find were the causes of such writing? Look, I think the causes, um, there's a lot and they'll be specific to an organisation as well. They'll be, you know, cultural as in cultural to the organisation and then broader public service and and government work. Uh, I think one thing that looms large in the minds of public servants is freedom of information. Um, You know, things are written down, then, um, you know, things could get dicey or a bit tricky um, and so... You know that that ha- that bear that has a huge bearing on how things are ex- expressed. I think also the legislated requirement to be objective and responsive um, is at odds. You know, being objective and responsive are almost, you know, diametrically opposed in a way. Um, so it's very very difficult to to reconcile those as one. Um, and you know the, the the whole idea of objectivity is also a difficult one. I mean, obviously, being objective is preferable to just making things up on the spot. Um, and we've seen what that's like in the US, for instance. Um, you know, so objectivity does give you a starting point where you know everyone can pretty much agree. Yes, this is pretty much fact. But um, the the language of objectivity, if I can put it that way also exerts exerts a kind of a a constraining um, effect on how things are articulated. So, you know, that's just a bunch of things um, I found uh, and that are pretty, you know, I mean, these are things that we can sort of, um, you know, through common sense pretty much uh, suspect of of having an effect on on the language of um, government experts. Mm. So so if we look at those two specific areas that you've identified. First of all, the impacts of freedom of information. Does that lead to more qualification perhaps around advice that's given? Absolutely. Look, and uh, I did one of my case studies was, um, I don't know if you recall, in 2016 during the uh, election campaign, um, the Labor Party raised negative gearing as something that they would look to reform. Uh, and that their reforms would, um, you know, return. I think it was up up to six billion dollars um, over the over the forwards back to government coffers. Um, the government at the time um, called this the most destructive policy ever proposed, and that it wouldn't really return six billion dollars. Um, and I, it looked like uh, Treasury had been asked to um, provide some briefing to the Treasurer at the time, Scott Morrison, on on the Labor policy, you know, to cost it, to, um, uh, to talk about it, um, and basically, you know, I guess with, with the view to disproving uh, Labor's claims. And that was then FOI'd. In 2018, uh, those FOIs were released to the ABC, the requesting um, news outlet. Um, and it was quite obvious that uh, the Treasurer had rejected that advice um, and uh, he claimed that he preferred to speak to his own contacts, which is what you, you can do that as a government minister. You don't have to accept all the advice that comes to you through your public servant uh, experts, um, but it's desirable. You know, you should want to, I guess, but you don't have to. 
Um, and so, so in twenty six in twenty eighteen, we heard that uh, uh, he he rejected the advice and that it contradicted what he uh, went on to say. But only uh, less than twelve months later, another minister was able to say, "Well, that advice confirmed what we'd said all along." So you've got the same advice written in such a way as to be interpretable to both sides of the argument or, or more than two sides if there are. So it it, it carefully avoided um, talking about any of the context around negative gearing. It, it made itself so small as to become, you know, malleable and infinitely interpretable. So, you know, that's, that's one way of um, doing that. And it's certainly a very good example of the dangers of perhaps not sort of writing or avoiding context. But also there are other case studies that you've put forward in the book, um, for example, central agencies' advice uh, following the statewide blackout in South Australia, Australian intelligence advice in the lead up to the 2003 uh, invasion of Iraq. There are two examples. Now, in your first example, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, the advice was able to be used both ways. But can you talk more about the reasons why policy advice in those other two examples was not taken up? So in the uh, blackout uh, case study, it wasn't even so much a matter of advice not being taken up as advice uh, preempting rejection. So it's skirted around talking about anything unpleasant or controversial, almost in a kind of anticipatory compliance. Um, uh, so in that uh, case study, you might recall the blackout happened uh, and within an hour or two, um, the Minister for Energy, Josh Frydenberg at the time, appeared on 7.30, kind of already almost claiming that, well, look, I mean, wind energy is unreliable and, you know, these things can happen. And then within 24 hours, Barnaby Joyce, um, a member of the coalition government, said, well, you know, uh, wind energy is unreliable and it wasn't working too well last night in South Australia. You know, look what's happened. And so this then became the very strong government narrative almost, you know, within hours of, of the blackout. And so the advice that then followed from uh, some of the central agencies and the Department of Environment um, restricted itself to only providing um status updates, you know, uh, of of repairs on the ground, damage and so on. You did see at one point in this FOI release, which was reams and reams of um, emails and attachments, uh, there was one advisor who said, "Um, I'm hearing um, advice that it wasn't wind energy, but I'm conscious that this is uh, what the the minister has already uh, said. So I'm I'm just trying not to, um, you know, perpetuate um, this ongoing um, you know, incorrect information. And another department official said, oh, yeah, look, we'll get back to you on that, which was kind of the silencing um, uh, statement uh, that was that they never returned to. And agencies stuck to simply status updates as a way to be responsive and to be objective. And this was evidence. I mean, these things were happening on the ground, but there was no talk of what does this mean in a strategic or policy sense? Is the government turning away from renewable energy altogether? 
Uh, will we meet our targets? Will we be in breach of the Paris Agreement? You know, those are those are solid policy considerations. If you see that this is where the wind is blowing, then those things need to be discussed. And they may have discussed them in person. No doubt they did. But on paper, um, there is none of that. Uh, it is simply status updates standing in as evidence. And that example around the Australian intelligence advice in the lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, what were the qualities of that advice that led it to be perhaps not used as it might have been? Well, look, I think it was used, but in different ways. uh, And I I can come back to that. Um, But so ONA and DRO, well, ONA is now ONI, I believe, but um, at the time, ONA and the Defence Intelligence Organisation produced... um, I can't remember the percentage, but uh, uh, under 20% of the intelligence that was being used in Australia in the lead up, the rest was from uh, the US and UK. Um, And so some of this was made available uh, through a parliamentary inquiry uh, in June 2003. And the advice initially was very measured, um, you know, really didn't see a case for invasion, didn't see any nuclear uh, capability. did find evidence of chemical and biological um, weaponry, but all, probably old, um, so not necessarily usable. Um, but as you know, the screws tightened and things became tense politically, uh, and it became very clear what the political intentions were. The advice by ONA became far more responsive to the government, uh, whereas DRO continued to stay very objective. I mean so objective that we had an excess of objectivity in a way that then again was so neutral as to, you know, you almost don't know what to do with it. So we had um, statements like um, the evidence, uh, uh, you know, the evidence of, of nuclear capability in Iraq is as worrying. No, sorry, it was uh Basically, what we don't know is as worrying as what we do know, you know, that that kind of flavour. So, you know, I mean, that's really hedging it and it's perfectly objective and, and it's true. But what can you do with that? Um, n- not so much. Um, you know, the case against Iraq um, is, oh, is as substantial as... As it is insubstantial, or it's you know something like this. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact words anymore. But you know, it, it's very, very difficult to do anything with that. <laughs> so, so then in terms, and and there are three good examples of perhaps not best practice. But how common is the problem that around advice that is not compelling, or is not valuable, or is not useful in how it's meant? To be presented. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't have numbers for you, um, uh, but you know, we can see ourselves. Um, you know that. Well, we've ignored several tax reform reviews. We've ignored uh, the um, the advice that came through the home insulation program in the in the you know GFC fallout. We've ignored. I mean, take your pick, probably, you know, robo-debt, if anyone was to do a case study of that, uh, it sounds like there was a lot of uh, ignored advice there. So, 
Um, and these are just things we know through the media. And I'm not saying that this is something that happens all the time, but I think it's probably more common when the topics are difficult, you know, and perhaps not necessarily something the government wants. But, you know, hey, that's politics. So <laughs> these things happen. Hmm, yeah. So, uh, but interestingly, did did you come to a view around what you previously mentioned in one of your answers around this social relationship, this dynamic between senior public servants and ministers and their officers. Did did you come to some sort of view about the impacts of how people feel about these social relationships around the challenge of being frank and fearless in the advice that they are looking to give? Uh, well, not so much feel. I um, I didn't do... So my, my um, evidence was document-led primarily. I wasn't able to do interviews uh, on these case studies because, well, one is intelligence and the other two were still fairly recent. So, you know, people don't really uh, want to be on the record um, with this kind of stuff. Um, so, um, look, I can only guess at how they feel. <laughs> I don't think they feel great. I mean, people, the people that I know in the public service join the public service because they wanted to make a difference, um, you know, to enabling the public interest, you know, working for the government of the day and trying to do the best job they can. So, you know, I can only imagine that they might feel frustrated sometimes and that's okay. I mean, you can't, you know, you, you might think you've got the most beautiful policy in the world or the most beautiful brief in the world and it just doesn't always grow legs. That's life. Um, and that should be fine. But um, I did come across some excellent research um, that was done in the Department of Environment just after uh, the whole home insulation program uh, fiasco and people were feeling very down about it. Um, they felt personally responsible for what had happened, you know, the deaths that um, uh, that happened as a part of that, which of course doesn't happen in every policy area, nor does it happen frequently, thank God. But, um, you know, uh, I, I guess people don't, you know, they are not loving this situation, let's put it this way. At the same time, though, um, there is there is more that can be done uh, in how you articulate. Um, you know, you, you are serving the government of the day and through the government of the day, the public, um, and and you're you're not there to hold the government accountable per se, but you are there to help them implement their election commitments, for instance, um, which can change. But you should be able to provide the government with information it doesn't want as well. And if they reject that, well, that's fine. Uh, that that is up to them. But it's not up to you. Do you have any any advice around best practices as to how people might arrive and indeed improve their ability to achieve? that very particular aim that you just outlined? Uh, I think there's some simple ways and then there's some more complex uh, ones that would take a lot longer. So simple ones are, I've noticed then that when public servants start to write, something changes. You know, I may have just spoken to someone and they've explained it beautifully in everyday language, but when, well, I was gonna say when pen hits paper, but that's not the case. Uh, when fingers hit keyboard, it um, 
something changes and things become, there's a great uh, phrase in German uh, where you'd say uh, it, the language becomes swollen. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's just excessively wordy, um, you know, sentences become too long. And another thing that happens is, you know, briefings can be quite long, but really the only important thing is right at the end. So, you know, I'd often come across, say, drafts for media releases and by the end of, you know, nearly five years as a speechwriter, I would know to go to the end and just immediately take the last sentence and put it at the top. <laughs> and you would probably have come across this kind of thing too, David, in your own work. Um, so, so that, you know, there's, there are some simple uh, fixes, you know, right as you speak, maybe not completely colloquially, but, you know, think about that. Think about your audience. Um, not everybody understands this thing that you love. Um, and being able to say it simply doesn't mean you're dumbing it down. Uh, you're actually being quite impressive in writing about complex things in accessible ways. So I think you need to change your mindset there. Um, also having an argument, you know, think about, I mean, rhetoric is actually really important, but the public service thinks rhetoric is basically, you know, aligned with propaganda uh, or advocacy. So we won't go near that, except rhetoric is important in mounting a logical argument. So I think that's important, you know, just doing courses in, um, you know, plain English aren't going to do it. What's, it, what's important is structure. Uh, even if you're a beautiful writer, you need to structure your argument and your minister who has no time whatsoever should be able to know in the first three sentences what this thing is about. So those things I think are relatively easy fixes, but you know, the harder ones are uh, becoming more courageous, you know, becoming bolder, um, not trying to stifle your imagination in trying to propose, you know, new things, reforms, things that are difficult, things that could be long-term, which I know I don't always find a receptive audience um, on either side of government. Um, you know, and there are things that we can't do anything about, like three-year election cycles. Um, so therefore, of course, things have become more short-term. But um, yeah, I think those are sort of more cultural. And, you know, don't be afraid of FOI. <laughs> you can be clear. Um, in fact, it will... The a situation will be diffused, I think, through clarity rather than heightened. Um, uh, so, yeah, these are they, these are just a, a few things that that come to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, I could probably give you a few more, but uh, I don't know. If you no, know. no, that's useful. I, I think they are useful, actionable insights that you've provided for people to be able to think about really in consideration when they start to perhaps take the swelling out of the first draft <laughs> That's right. that they've been able to put in place. And again, in an earlier answer, you did speak about that contestability. You know, ministers take advice from multiple sources, not just their public service experts. How does that dynamic play in terms of a role of a government expert advisor and how should they look upon, you know, this this notion of contestability? I think one way uh, through that would be, look, I mean, we're right near the ANU here. Um, you know, uh, cultivate relationships with experts in your field. 
Um, draw on multiple experts in your policy advice. Be aware of the contestability, be aware of the uncertainty. Saying that the jury's out or that this is an uncertain situation is better than pretending it doesn't exist. So providing several um, interpretations is is good, you know, and it, it actually helps you to become more convincing. Um, so I think, you know, showing your awareness of contestability is is the best way around it rather than just providing one expert view. So listen, in terms then of what you know looking into the future, perhaps two, three, four years down the track, how could the APS perhaps look at the way that it improves the inputs? I know you provided that advice in a, a couple of earlier answers, but what are some of the more sort of broader contextual interventions that might be put in place that enable public servants to be better able, better prepared, more willing to be frank and fearless in the advice that they are providing? Look, I think I think it is something that needs to be done agency and service-wide. And I know that through the APS reform uh, task force and the APS Academy, they are looking at at those sorts of things. But I think what's also needed is to you know, starting from the graduate cohorts onwards is to help people develop their judgment. And this is a really difficult one to, um, you know, you can't train yourself to be uh, better at, you know, at judgment. Um, that, That comes from being exposed to all sorts of situations. So I think moving around into different agencies people working in ministerial offices is always hugely valuable to see how advice is actually read what process it undergoes you know and how it comes to be ignored or or rejected um do do different things go elsewhere expose yourself to different situations read a lot um yeah develop your courage but again you know you need to you can't be what you don't see and by that i don't mean you know nobody has courage in the aps but you know i think i think it is an organizational effort where you have to feel safe uh to to speak you know truth to power in particular ways i mean you don't you don't have to be uh, confrontational about it um you know you'll be completely ignored then but um, take the time to understand how other people understand things, complexity, uh, and put yourself in their shoes. You know, think about audience. I think that's something that very few people do. Often, you know, public servants are very reactive, so there's no time to think, no time to think about audience. You know, you just start writing, but then you do end up with these things that you haven't actually thought through where your writing is the thing that's helping you think through and that's why you come up with the answer right at the end but by then you have to you know submit your brief um give give yourself more time to think and plan and talk to others um you know 70 percent of the time that you have really should be on that and then the writing or or the or the verbal presentation it doesn't really matter that that will then actually all become a lot easier so you know some practical things but also some some longer term, uh, I guess, culture changes are required. In your experience, do you find that ministerial officers are happy to give guidance to people who are preparing advice, to give them a steer on just exactly how it is that they would like that advice 
presented to them? I think they do. Um, and certainly if you engage early, and this, well, this will depend on what level you are in the APS, but if you engage early with your specific advisor, I think that helps. Um, but, but I also know that, I mean, things are always crazy in ministerial offices. So, you know, I know that departments have tried to um, include, you know, like little cards, on, uh, like sort of cover pages on, on briefs to say, well, how did this read? Was this accessible? Was it this? Was it that? And these things just don't work because they don't have time. So feedback is really, really hard. Um, so if that, you know, if that can't happen, then, I mean, the, the main thing would be to engage early and say, look, I'm thinking this. Is this the kind of, you know, uh, thing you were thinking? How does the minister like to read things or, you know, just and so they know what's coming so that they'll actually be prepared for for your briefing. Well, Dr. Christiane Gerblinger, thank you so much. And the book, How Government Experts Self-Sabotage, The Language of the Rebuffed. Where can people get access to your book? Uh, They can, well, they can Google the title or they can go to the ANU Press website um, and download it there. Uh, I know that they have a new uh, publisher now, so you should be able to get a hard copy as well, though if you download it on the website, it's free. So, um, you know, go to your nearest office printer (laughs) and print it out. And and how big is it? How many pages? Uh, good question. I, it's, um, oh, I don't know, 200, 230, something like that. Okay, well, uh, I think that's pretty accessible and I'd say that it's very worthwhile for many of our public sector audience and with Work With Purpose because this is a podcast for those people and they're often uh, preparing advice to ministerial offices, and I'm sure they'll find a lot of wisdom in your book. And I think there's nothing like learning from case studies when you're able to see and indeed, you know, feel and understand the challenges. And I'm sure there is plenty, as you have outlined, that there are plenty of other great advice there for people to help improve their performances. So a very big thank you for coming onto the program today and to you, the audience, a big thank you once again for coming back to listen to Work With Purpose. A great conversation there with Dr. Gerblinger. Fascinating, isn't it? Great insights. And the thing I like, lots of actionable things that you'll be able to take away and to put into your daily work and lots of things to think about as you start to produce Uh, that advice for ministers and ministerial officers. And hey, let's take the swelling out of it as much (laughs) as we possibly can. So Work With Purpose is produced in collaboration with Content Group and the Institute of Public Administration of Australia, the ACT branch. And we are also supported each week by the Australian Public Service Commission. And a big thanks to both IPA and to the APSC. If you do have time for a rating or review of the program, that helps us to be found. So wherever you do listen to this podcast, be it Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, many, many other podcast apps, please, a rating or a review will help. But a big thanks, first of all, to Dr. Gare Blinger for coming on to the program today. And a big thank you to you. My name is David Pembroke. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. 
Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. Thank you.